you, 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 you give us a hard time for being white, being American, and being in control. I did more for our black population than anybody other than Abraham Lincoln, okay? And nobody's even close. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black, it's our God. Jesus Christ has turned the tables on you. Amen. Victory. I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. The Lord says it is done. I bet he can't wait to go home and be, become a black man again. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, good people. How y'all doing out there? All right. Here we are, y'all. Here we are. Dan White Hodge. Once again, another week. Oh, Dogma. Well, it's good to uh, good to be here as always. Uh, welcome to Profane Faith. I am your host and curator, Daniel White Hodge, out here in Chicago. And uh, wow, here we are, March, heading into uh, you know what is it, March Madness? I don't really follow March Madness, but uh, if you do, you know, hey, all power to you. I guess they're allowing people now on in the. Uh, what is it in the stadium now? I think that's the that's the plan now to let uh, to let folks in. So hopefully people still social distancing. You know, what's that one uh, that one meme uh, that says just because you're over it doesn't mean the pandemic is over. I, I, I'm butchering it, but it's this the this, this young woman and she sings it uh, just because you're over it. Uh, doesn't mean the pandemic is over. Um, and I, you know, I have to keep reminding myself that cause it's like, man, it's been a couple of times I walk out the car and I forget my damn mask. And so, Ooh, Lord, I am ready for this thing to be over. But at the same time, um, you know, it's, it's interesting just to hear different, you know, people's different opinions on the, especially black folk on, on, on the vaccine. I'm, I'm curious, are y'all, y'all getting vaccinated? Y'all, uh, you know, y'all hooking it up because, uh, I, man, I tell you, I, 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 I go back and forth. If I'm honest with y'all, I go back and forth and just thinking about, um, you know, do I want to get vaccinated? Do I not? I mean, I definitely want to get rejoin the world. And, uh, I, I, I get that there is some, you know, conspiracy theories around that say that, you know, uh, what is it? Bill Gates is going to control your mind and you know put nanobots into that and some say it's the mark of the beast and you know because everybody has to have it <laughs> so um all kind of rumors floating around out there but your boy is trying to sift through all that you know and because here's the thing the, the 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 logistical aspect of it, it just trying to get it um has been you know quite the pain in the ass at least here in illinois i don't know where you're at um, you know, maybe you've already gotten it and you good to go. Um, you know, I also wonder what the long-term effects are and granted, I mean, you know, I know the argument is like, yeah, but what are the long-term effects of, of you, you catch COVID? It's like, yeah, I know. I get that. I get that. I'm yeah, I, you know, I, I just, I always have those questions and I wonder, you know, it, you know, because it came out so fast, 
I'm, you know, curious. There's three different versions. What are the side effects? You know, it, you know, it's like one of those things, like whatever, I have a health condition. I don't know until that thing's injected into me. Right. Um, and so granted, you know, those are, you know, those are all things, you know, the what ifs, but nevertheless, right. We, we know those things happen and we know that they are very tangible and very real. Um, and especially, you know, in black and brown communities, we know that, uh, you know, we're used as guinea pigs oftentimes. Um, I remember when I used to teach a class uh, for uh, back at Azusa Pacific University. Man, whoa, I I hated that university, man. I, it, you know, when I first started there, and I won't get sidetracked, but I, I, I promise. <laughs> but, um, you know, when I... When I first started, I thought, you know, you know, the typical standard black Christian guy going into white space that they're like, oh, we want, you know, we're, you're the exact type of person we need at this school. You know, I just believed, you know, believed them. So uh, there I went and it wasn't until about, I don't know, three, four years. I was there for about seven years, um, you know, teaching part time. And um, I remember that, you know, there was a guy, um, I'm forgetting the guy's name. He was in the theology department and, uh, cause I had applied, I had applied for several positions at, you know, at that place and, uh, you know, didn't even get an interview, right. <laughs> even though I was the, the, the person that, 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 that they were looking for at that, you know, I was constantly told that, right. Constantly told, you know, it's, you know, you're, this is, the, you know, you, the way you teach, this is, we need you here, Dan. We need you here, right? Oh, uh, I'm sure some of y'all POCs and 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 women, white women too. I'm sure y'all gotten some of that stuff where, you know, it's just that we need you, Dan. We we need you or fill in whatever your name is, right? <laughs> so it was, man. It was just hell, man. I think you know, and I believed them, and I tried to live into that. And boo, doggies, it was just. It was just hell on ice, man. It was, it was, it was, it was just crazy. I won't get into that in details. Um, I can later. Um, and probably, in fact, we probably should have a special issue, you know, on folks who've taught at private Christian universities and just their experience. I mean, um, it, yeah. And I, and I would definitely say going from that school to where I'm at now is a major shift. Um, but we're quickly headed that way at where I'm currently at. And, um, you know, it was, it, and, 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 you know, and the reality of it is, is that, you know, Christians are just so damn scary about everything. Well, white Christians are just so damn scary about white evangelical Christians. Let me just keep <laughs> modifying that. Right. Uh, are just so damn scary about everything. And, um, yeah, I, it, I remember the brother man sat me down and was just like, Dan, you know, you're just, uh, you're just not APU material. <laughs> I remember that. I was like, oh, okay. Um, but you know, a brother needed a, you know, a damn paycheck, right? I was working freaking 12, freaking 13 different classes, six different universities and traveling 450 miles a week. It was crazy. It was crazy. I don't miss those days. All that to say, I remember one of the, one of the many roles that I played there was, you know, the honorary black guy to teach down downtown and uh downtown la and in a, in a program called la term and i remember you know teaching a course it was urban explorations now the pedagogical approach to this i'm totally on board with and i've tried to implement that and apply that to different uh places and spaces uh you know where i've been so i think the pedagogy is still sound in terms of 
taking students out of their comfort zone, placing them in environments, uh, helping them dissect and deconstruct and, you know, really uh, break down what it is you really believe. But, you know, when they're out of their comfort zone, you know, they, the students were only allowed to take um, public transportation. Uh, so when I was teaching the class, we, you know, we were just out. We were just out in L.A. Just every, I taught at, what is it, um, twice a week. So twice a week we were out um out and about, you know, in the city, uh, maybe, you know, very little time in the classroom. Right. And so, you know, that, because again, that type of model, I'm just like, yes, let's get out. Let's do these things. Um, and you know, there was one of the, one of the places we used to go to, of course, was South Central and, and, and different, you know, communities of color. And it was, it was always hands down, you know, that was where the oil drilling was taking place. A lot of people don't know that there's actual oil drilling, like the shit you see out in the damn ocean, right? You know, the oil rigs, they are in neighborhoods and what neighborhoods are they in <laughs> black and brown, you know, neighborhoods. So bringing that all back. It, you know, we're used as these guinea pigs and, you know, and, and consequently, of course, those neighborhoods have higher reports of cancer, higher reports of brain tumors, higher reports of lung problems, breathing problems. The air in L.A. is already bad. Right. And so those type of things I always think about um, in regards to a vaccination. So those are the things that are on my mind. Uh, that's what I think about sometimes. And uh, we'll see. I mean, you know, more than likely, I will probably get it and, uh, you know, go on with life and hopefully you know, I, I don't pass out or, you know, Bill Gates turns me into some kind of nanobot. Hopefully if I'm a nanobot, though, I can go to another planet, man. You know what I'm saying? I can make the long journey. I can go to Mars and, and finally, you know, see what is uh, see what is out there. Right. Oh, my gosh. You know, have uh, if you haven't uh, if you don't subscribe to PRRI, I highly recommend it. They have uh, some amazing uh, just some data reports. Uh, PRRI. Um, it, you know, P R R I dot org. I'll put these in the show notes. They recently came out with a, a report looking at, um, you know, black and white and born again, how race affects opinions among evangelicals. Uh, it's very interesting. Just some of the, some of the reports that they came out with, you know, in regards to this now, granted, you know, a lot of this is, is still looking at, you know, kind of the binary, um, but they have other studies that aren't just looking at um, the binary and and whatnot, and so I, I I would recommend you know checking checking these out and see seeing what they got. This recent uh, one just just came out, um, and it says Black Evangelical Protestants and White Evangelical Protestants share a core theological belief in considering themselves evangelical or quote unquote born again. But how those beliefs are expressed in voting behavior and policy preferences differ considerably. Uh, they have an American Values uh, Atlas, and that shows that about one in five Americans, 22%, identify as evangelical. Now, that's down slightly, y'all, 26% uh, in um, 2013. So that right there needs to tell you something, right? Those shifts. Um, this change is mostly driven uh, by the declining proportion of white evangelicals from 17% to 14% and a smaller decline. Here we go. Right. Among black evangelicals from 5% to 4%. Now, again, these numbers are very interesting. And I think there's a lot of nuances that go into a study like this. Right. It's like, of course, you have to look at the measuring, um, you know, the measuring tool, uh, the methodological approach, you know, and, and all that stuff. I would say their methods are pretty sound. Um, I would also say that if it's just survey and then how we define evangelical, right? If you're a good critical thinker, I'm sure you're asking that question right now. Um, that's good. Uh, I do too. And as a researcher myself, I want to know, um, 
how then, you know, within this, these two populations, white and black, right? And then what does this look like uh, for Catholics? What does this look like for Coptic? What does this look like um, also for, uh, you know, non-Christian faith, you know, like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons? And what do those numbers look like, especially in the African-American community? I'm curious because we've held on to the notion, right, that in our community, we don't we don't have a decline like, you know, in white churches, right, of young people or or, you know, or whatever. Right. We don't have that decline. But I'm starting to see more and more numbers. And, I, and even in some of the research I've done, I've seen some of the 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 I don't want to say switching or or people just saying, oh, no, I'm just I'm not a Christian anymore. But definitely there's a stronger bend towards critical thought towards when it comes to religion um, and you know, this this is not surprising at all, given the amount of data that we have access to. Um, and, you know, young people, of course, those under the age of 25 are going to be much more critical in the African-American community of religion and of organized faith. Um, so it's just something very interesting. Um, it says here also black evangelicals view on God and the morality of public officials. Um, it says black evangelicals are three times as likely as white evangelicals to agree with the statement religion causes more problems in society than it solves. 28% versus nine. All right. So that's a kind of an interesting differential there. But do not differ significantly from white evangelicals in their agreement that it is necessary to believe in God in order to be moral and have good values. 74% versus 64% fascinating stuff y'all i'm telling y'all this is the type of thing right here that uh i love nerding out on and you know there's it's it's some fascinating research and data because i think it points to some of the shifts um in in religion also it it, it also lines up to with just some of the 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 similarities between you know again black evangelicals uh and white evangelicals especially in that terminology um, you know, do we center salvation? Do we center morality and ethics as only right being faith, you know, connected to a faith? Um, or are we able to separate those and say, you know, anybody really can be morally right and ethic. You don't need a religion for that. Um, I'm also curious about Latinx. I'm also curious about Pacific uh, Asian. Um, I'm also curious about uh, certain populations, right? But especially folks who come from different countries like Kenya, um, uh, Ghana, places like that, Sierra Leone, you know, where it was a heavy colonization, heavy missional field. Um, so what is what does that also look like as well? Very curious to see that if y'all have connections to research like that, by all means, hit me up um, and let me know. Um, it also says black evangelicals responses to the to the 2020 uh, summer protests are different. But we knew that. Right. And a lot of this stuff. Right. I'm sure some of you may be saying, well, we knew that <laughs> we didn't need a, a, a survey, you know, for that. And, and I get that. I get that. And I think a lot of times. Well, in the research field, you know, people don't go off of anecdotal data. You know, you have to, you know, actually process it and go through it and figure out you're like okay what what is the what is the data actually saying what are what is what is actually going on what are the trends um so i you know i think it's important to continue looking at this stuff but it's also non-surprising you know just to, to see some of these numbers pop up so just some stuff to think about this week as you're on your way um but this week y'all i have a, a a great guest on the show i am excited um to bring her on and you know and and to really just to, to talk about what does it mean to be joyful what does it mean to be suffering what does it mean to be going through major 
elements in your life that are, you know, that that are tied to suffering and lament. And what happens when all those things are coming in at the same time? My guest this week is Dr. Angela Guerrero, who's an assistant professor of practical theology at Truett Theological Seminary at Baylor University. Um, She previously served as an associate research scholar at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Um, She has a new book out and uh, and she is, you know, examining what does joy look like? Right. As you know, especially when you go, you know, from a narrative perspective. So that's what I appreciate about this book. The book, of course, is called The Gravity of Joy. Um, and uh, Dr. Grell is going to break it down here in terms, in regards of, you know, what the book is actually about, um, you know, how we look at joy. And, and here's the thing. I want to say, you know, up front, I mean, uh, this was a great interview. And, you know, I think initially, if I'm brutally honest, I was like, oh, man, here's another book about, you know, toxic positivity. We just have to be happy. Right. You know what I'm saying? That's not this book. That's not this book. So I encourage you to check it out. Check out this interview. Right. That I'm, we about to we about to have this conversation and everything. But uh, it's definitely not a foofy foofy everybody's gonna make it um this is some good stuff and i appreciate her perspective of looking at really hard things that happen death uh life changes uh, you know uh loss all those things are powerful and uh so i appreciate it angela breaking those down um and also just taking the time to really kind of nuance some of that stuff uh with culture so check this conversation out and, uh, you know, check out her book as well. As always, the uh, links will be in the show notes, whitehodgepodcast.com. Check out Profane Faith. Click on this week's um, episode and you will see the show links or you can do a search and you can go to those show links right there. All right, y'all stay safe and we'll see you next week. Oh, Angela, thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast, Profane Faith. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the, to the conversation. Yeah, no, this is this is great. This this book uh, I found, and for those of you again who are who are listening, the gravity of joy. Um, in fact, we were just speaking before I hit record uh, about this is an advanced reading. This hasn't been put out yet. So I don't know. It's uncorrected proof. So I, I'll take it, though, because I didn't see any any corrections that needed to be done. So shoot. Um, before we get on, because I definitely want to get to this. What has been happening with you uh, from birth to now? What's what's led to Dr. Angela Williams Garrell? Um, yeah, so I'll try to, I'll try to give the quick version. Okay. Um, I grew up in Kentucky. I grew up in Eastern Kentucky. Um, that's important. I think for people to know that I grew up in, in Appalachia, Appalachia, however you would like to say it. Um, Appalachia is how we say it, where we're from. Um, but I grew up there in Eastern Kentucky until I was eight. Uh, when my parents got divorced, moved to Lexington, Kentucky in the center of the state. Um, so grew up there, uh, but then when, uh, when I finished high school, decided to go to college out of state, went for the first couple of years to Oklahoma Baptist University. It wasn't a good experience for me, to be honest. Um, it was tough because um, I didn't feel very affirmed in my sense of like my call to my vocation. Um, okay. So I actually ended up out in Los Angeles at 20. And I thought I was going there for like three months to just kind of get a new perspective on life. And yeah. I ended up staying for 13 years. Wow. Um, what part? Yeah. I'm from Pasadena. 
Well, yeah, I lived in Pasadena. I lived in Burbank, lived in Santa Monica, lived in Redondo Beach. All right. <laughs> yes. All right. So, yeah, I love, love, love Southern California. It is definitely my home. And that's why I wanted to, to say that is like that I live there is because Kentucky, you know, I feel um, a connection to that to that state because my family is from there mm-hmm. for generations, you know. But at the end of the day, like if someone asked me, where do you feel at home? I would say Los Angeles, uh, the city of dreamers, the city of energy. Uh, yes. I don't know. Like there was something in me that was awakened that had never been awakened before when I when I moved to that city. So um, I thought for a long time uh, starting. So in second grade is when I told my mom I wanted to write a book someday. All so right. I wanted to be a writer. Wanted to be a writer my entire life, but in middle school, I felt really called to youth ministry, I think because I had an amazing youth pastor. Um, And so I did that for a long time. A lot of my, the first like 14 years of work for me um, in college and and after that was spent investing in the lives of teenagers um, in all different sorts of capacities, Um, you know, camp, like at camps, nonprofit stuff at church. Um, and so that I'm just really close to my heart still to this day. I love investing in the lives of young people and mentoring them because other people mentored me. Um, yeah. you know, I like to pay, I like to pass it, you know, pass it forward. But, um, but yeah, as I was, uh, in ministry and, and hanging out with youth, um, one of my professors, I, you know, I kept kind of, I always had kept like kind of one church, one foot on the ground hanging out with youth and then one foot in the academy. Mm -hmm. And so I was getting degrees. And as I got my master of divinity, one of my professors said, I really think that you, well, I helped research a book on youth called hurt 2.0 with chap Clark. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so chap said to me, I think you have a real passion for researching like what's impacting young people's lives. I think maybe you should consider getting a PhD. So thanks to him, I did. And then, um, about eight years ago, I started adjuncting, um, And so here, you know, so anyways, I moved from doing, you know, being, uh, being on the ground, like hanging out with youth, being paid in that way to going into full-time teaching, but I still like volunteer as much as possible, you know, trying to, you know, I never want to be just like in an ivory tower, hanging out in the academy. Like I always want to be like with people outside of the, you know, outside of mm-hmm. higher ed. So anyways, that's, that's a little bit about me. That's what's up. I mean, I, it, I, I love it. You, we, we have similar stories. I, I, I was in youth ministry for many, many, many years as well. And, <laughs> Did Young Life back in, you know, like, well, this was the 90s. I, I left uh, in Young Life in 02, but um, nevertheless, I have stayed connected. So I'm, and I'm with you. I mean, I, don't, I think it's uh, important to have that, you know, one foot in the academy, but also like what what is going on on the ground? I always find the two sometimes disconnected. Yeah. Um, it's easy to present a paper, but it's another thing to actually, you know, implement some of those theories and processes in real life. Um, what, uh, well, let me ask you this. How, and I ask a lot of guests this question, and obviously now we're in a different era. We, you know, it's 2021. We have a new president, but how did the 2016 election, you know, and some of the reckoning that's been, you know, even coming up with that, how, how did that affect you? How did that, uh, you know, how did you engage with some of that? And, and matter of fact, I think I might've seen you before were you ever at ayme yeah 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 i used i used to go to that 
Yeah, that's where we first met. That's what I was thinking. That's what I was thinking. I was like, wait a minute. I think I think I I recognize you. I I never forget faces. All right, that's that's great. Um, so yeah, I'd be curious just how some of that stuff you know affected you and just in you know just nuanced. I mean, I know it's particularly with you know working with young folks. I mean, a lot of that. The, the old processes of just trying to, you know, uh, I mean, I still believe in earning the right to be heard, but, you know, and that that's across relationships. But, you know, in general, right, there's been at least where I work at, there's been a much stronger emphasis on race and ethnicity. But I'd be curious from your perspective what what that looks like and how, the, like I said, again, the 2016 election affected you and your own scholarship. Yeah, it talking about bringing, you know, being a bridge between the academy and what's happening on the ground. I think that if if the 2016 election didn't bring anything new into your classroom as a professor, like something's going wrong. You know, like how are you not, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? Yeah. How are you not addressing all the things that, you know, that that brings up for people? And for me, that brought into the classroom even more discussion, just like it did for you on race and equity in this country or the lack thereof. Uh, equity, you know, it brought more attention to me for, I think it was a huge driving factor for me for wanting to be a chaplain at a prison, you know, which I write about in the gravity of joy. Like, I think it, it really, I wanted to understand more, you know, it was one thing, it's one thing to read about mass incarceration, to read about systemic in, injustice in its various forms. It's another to go and sit with people who've been deeply impacted by, you know, such things and to try to understand what's actually happening inside of these places. Um, and, you know, and so for me, it meant, yeah, it meant having conversations in the classroom about race and equity, about having conversations in the classroom around sexism. Um, it meant, so I've been, and it meant actually changing some assignments that I gave to students, asking them, for example, one of my assignments for my class teaching for transformation, which I'm teaching right now, mm -hmm. is literally asking students to think about the ways that Christianity, Christian education, um, in its various forms has contributed to things like racism, uh, sexism, ableism, and so on. Um, so they have to pick a topic, they have to read a book that is will help them to understand the topic more, and then they really have to articulate how Christian education has contributed to this problem, and then what we can do to mitigate it. Like, what does Christian education, you know? And so, and and I think that's hard for students, you know, because sometimes they're like, wait, what? You know, you, <laughs> you're saying that we're part of the problem, like Christian educators, and I'm like, 100%, you know? So for me, it became you know, really clear the kind of, it, it shaped assignments, it shaped conversations, um, it shaped readings that I chose for classes and conversations, and then it shaped my own life and what I chose to participate in, to read, to give money to, mm. uh, to volunteer my time to. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and I would definitely say that. I mean, I know, and, and, and the reason I ask that is, is in particular because I feel like there was a lot of societal, almost like a seismic shift that's happened. I think it's still happening. I mean, and I, I keep saying, you know, like, hey, just because, you know, Biden is elected doesn't really mean, I mean, yeah, we have a new president and, you know, we don't have a constant kind of beat down with social media from a president. But nevertheless, those folks, they everybody won by margins, <laughs> by millimeters. Um how I mean, how did I'd love to know the transition from L.A. to, to Baylor? Um, I I was actually born in, in Texas and I know Waco well and uh, had a cousin of mine go to Baylor. I knew of, of Baylor a long time ago. But how, you know, how have you nuanced some of that 
being in the Bible Belt um, out there uh, in that area, Waco, Texas, and and, and whatnot. How and how have you you know navigated some of those you know d- uh, those uh, conversations in in classes in classrooms? Um, that's a great question. Um, in between Los Angeles and Waco for me was New Haven, Connecticut. So I worked at Yale University for three and a half years. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. So I just want to, yeah. So that was, it was definitely interesting. Like all three spaces are just really different. Yeah. <laughs> like LA versus Connecticut, like the East, you know, the East, Northeast versus Texas. And so it's been interesting for me to kind of experience, you know, very different cultures in the same country, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so each place that I go to definitely, you know, from Kentucky to LA to, te- uh, to Connecticut to Texas, you know, it's been for me this um, each time trying to both understand where I am first and listen and pay attention and not assume you know, because that's the thing is that I think I could have come to Waco, Texas and assumed a lot of things mm-hmm. um, in light of where I had been. Um, but really, you know, so what's I think the biggest thing is I'd like just throughout my life and living in different places and being especially in L.A. around so many different kinds of people. Yeah. Um, I mean, wow. Talk about diversity. You know, it's just a lot like a, like it opened my eyes to just so many other languages and people and ethnicities and ways of doing life and religious traditions, you know. So I think I came to Waco with a really open heart and an open mind and open hands to that feeling like I really felt that I was supposed to come and to be here um, through a series of events. And it's been really incredible for me over the last year and a half, the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of students in my classes and people that I've had conversations with in Waco um, are incredibly friendly, incredibly themselves, like open to learning, open to illuminations, to growth, to, you know, really love God. Like my students like really, really love other people. Mm. They really, I mean, the overwhelming majority of my students are in seminary because they just, they want a lot of the things that they feel like Jesus wanted. They want justice. They want more equity. They want love. They want, you know, the beloved community. I mean, I really believe that, you know, and I've, so I've been like, it's been very refreshing at Baylor University for me to engage with the students that I have. Um, it's been, it's been great. That's what's up. No, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear. And let me ask, let me ask you more of a, uh, of an academic institutional question. How is enrollment? Cause I know that that's come up a lot, especially with COVID and, um, Christian higher education in general, right? Um, you know, the numbers, I mean, I know where I teach at our seminary numbers are just dismal, right? And so, and I know, uh, you know, I adjunct at places like Fuller as well and hear some of the rumors of just numbers. How, how is that, in, you know, in terms of just, you know, back, I mean, obviously Baylor is, is big and they have a well-known reputation and whatnot, Baylor, Madison, the whole nine, but how, in particular, how, how has the, the seminary and areas, and do you teach primarily undergrad, graduate, or, or both? Um, I primarily teach graduate students, but I am teaching a class um, this semester that has both undergrads and graduates in it. It's okay. called Jesus and the Meaning of Life. Ooh. Um, <laughs> Ooh. Oh, I know. <laughs> That started, that class started two days ago and I opened, I quoted Cornell West um, to open the class because he he opened some of his classes saying, you've come to this class to learn how to die so that you can learn how to live. 
And um, so that's what that's what we're talking about this semester. A little bit of Loop Nine, a <laughs> little bit of losing our lives to save them. All right. So um, yeah, so I teach both right now, um, but uh, we are super like all my colleagues and I um, that I'm like you know my good friends here across disciplines. We are overjoyed to say that enrollment actually. So at the seminary, it mm -hmm. was um, it increased. <laughs> Everything cool? Is that, is that your cat? Uh, yes, <laughs> as 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 it making an appearance. Uh, my my cat <laughs> knocking over stuff in my studio. Yes, I'm. <laughs> I'm sorry. For those of you who can't see my cat, literally Bob, he he gets up here. I'm I'm in my studio, which has a access to some of the rafters. He likes getting up in there, but he of course he likes to come when I'm either because this is where I teach as well. He likes to come when I'm either teaching or online or doing something and just knocking crap over. So just just wants to be a part of things. Right. Exactly. <laughs> So, yes, thing, things are cool. And now that he's scared and spooked himself, I'm actually going to build a shelf so he can just get up and not keep knocking my chair over. But anyways, please continue. You were saying. Oh, no, I'm just I'm happy to report that uh, enrollment's up at, at Truett Seminary and then at Baylor University. Um, it's my understanding that it's a little bit up or at least very steady across the board. Um, so we're feeling super, super grateful. No, that's good. I'm, I, well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. And I, you know, I know everybody. You know, every university is is different. But I mean, I'm glad to hear that that's that is the case. Um, oh, with you. Let me let me ask you this is as well as we're thinking about this, and since particularly since we both have backgrounds and in, in youth ministry, I, I was listening to a podcast this morning, and I'm fact and I'm forgetting the the name of it. It it was. Um, Oh, mercy. Do I even still have it? Oh, here we go. Freed hearts. Jesus in the church. What's the difference? Um, and at the very beginning, they say, you know, you know, that the, one of the worst things that ever happened to uh, to Jesus was, you know, the religion of Christianity and stuff. How have you navigated some of the, the and, and, and again, not and, and I ask these, again, these questions just as really as curious as an academic and how other colleagues of mine like yourself are engaging uh, with this. And you're a professor of, uh, let's see, practical theology. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yes, okay. sir. Um, but uh, I'm be curious, you know, how how some of the conversations is really just pedagogical. How have some of the conversations about religion? Um, I know Barna keeps sending me stuff about Gen Z now, and you know, reaching the 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 all these. I mean, how have you navigated some of that? And you know, especially with you know Christianity's almost obsession, if you will, with young people. You know, that dates all the way back, as we know, right? You know, for 80, 90 years, you know, like, you know, we're losing this generation, um, you know, or maybe, you know, I, I, and I don't know, again, you know, where you fall into all of that and stuff, but I'd be curious, you know, what you think in regards to that and just, you know, in some, in some regards, people, you know, touted as a, a mass exodus of young people or, um, you know, even the human sexuality, you know, question and whatnot. Does that make sense? Sorry, that was a conglomerate of, of stuff there. <laughs> I think so. I mean, you can definitely ask me something else if I don't really answer your question. But um, I, you know, I think that there are some young people. I think that um, it can't be denied that there is some exodus, like that there are young people who leave church and decide that they no longer want to be a part of like a formal religion of Christianity, but they want to be spiritual, but not religious or something like that. 
Um, I think there's more and more research that's showing us too that even when people profess to be quote unquote like Christian or a particular religion that they don't necessarily practice it. Mm -hmm. um, they don't. It doesn't necessarily have something to do with the habits that make up their lives, the desires that they have, the beliefs that they hold. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think there's some like there's a lot of truth to all that, and we have to ask. Well, what does that mean for the way that we nurture communities, uh, especially when in light of like spirituality? But <clears throat> but also there are a lot of immigrant churches um, in the United States where religion among young people is flourishing. Um, you know, and so I think that's an important thing to point out is like there's not every congregation in the United States, not every group of young people in every place in the U.S. is experiencing an exodus in many in some places it's flourishing. Um, and so I think it's important to lean into those stories and to listen and to ask, why is that happening? You know, in the global south, Christianity in many ways is flourishing. Um, and you know, on the African continent, in numerous countries, Christianity flourishes. So it's just important that we don't keep this sort of, you know, so I think it's important, one, to tell the story in a nuanced way where we say yes and, you know, um, and so I try to do that in my classes with young people, I mean, with the, my students, which actually a lot of them are young people. <laughs> a lot of my students are between like 23 and 30. Okay. Like, so, um, you know, I, but then, I think that, you know, the role of my my class as a practical theologian, I'm always asking pretty much in every single class, what does it look like to reimagine discipleship, following Jesus, thinking about spirituality for this day, for this time? Like if they're not contributing new way, you know, so a lot of my assignments are super, super open-ended and it's their job to take, you know, the books that we read mm -hmm. and the, the discussions that we have, and then to add that to their own imagination and to really ask like, what should this look like? What is an alternative future for us? What is the next thing? What is God doing? How can we join in what God is doing? You know, and so my classes are very much about listening to the spirit, engaging in your imagination in light of what we've read and discussed so that we can think about the next thing, you know, and mm -hmm. we can be a part of the next thing. Um, so. No, I like that. And I, I like that. And I, I appreciate the, the nuance on that because I think that's important right with everything right especially when it comes to you know if it's doom and gloom or whatever it's like well let's you know let's look at that but i like but i like that and I like the open-endedness of of the assignments i mean which is you know one of the reasons um i ask i mean and and i'm assuming did baylor go online are y'all still online how how y'all how y'all been handling the the covid pandemic in texas <laughs> um we're actually a little bit of everything so okay. some professors are in person some are online and some are hybrid um, so online and in person at the same time while they're teaching or they're online sometimes and in person others. Okay. I mean, we're literally, we're really based on class size, on the level. Um, we really wanted freshmen to have as much of the in-person experience as possible. So, um, we, a lot of people who teach freshmen are doing definitely in person, but the, the important thing to know is that if you're in person, everyone is several feet apart from each other. 
um, the class size is limited or the space is increased so that everybody can sit a few feet apart. Everyone mm -hmm. is masked, including the professor. So as a professor, like I taught yesterday for three hours in a mask. So wow. and Monday too. Um, so it's just, you know, but what's in incredible. And then we have um, at Baylor, we're tested for COVID every week, staff, faculty, and students. Okay. Okay. So we are really, they are, I mean, so we, they're trying to catch it right away, you know, and so we have a dashboard every day that says how many active cases we have. The last time I checked it, it was 99 out of like 21,000 people. So they're on top of it. Baylor is, I'm really impressed with the nice. administration and what they've done to manage the COVID-19 crisis at our, at our institution. I like that. I like to hear that's good. I, you know, um, it, I think something like this, right, it forces and you begin to see, right, kind of the, 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 the mindset and, you know, kind of rise like when you get creative like that. And of course, 99, that's never good. We don't want anybody to get it. But man, 99, the number comparatively, right, like you said, out yeah. of 21,000. I mean, that's whoo. Uh, that's really good. That's really good. Yeah. Well, and I will say too, we have like a we have a building for quarantine. So whether people have symptoms or not, they can go. They go to this building. They're served meals at their door. Um, then um, we also have tents all over campus that were bought. Special tents that are heated or air conditioned, where um, students can. And then there's plexiglass at all the tables so that students can study next to each other or eat next to each other, but not you know, but in like this really open space that has really good air filtration. Um, they test the sewage of buildings every week to see if there's a high concentration of COVID-19 in a particular building. They quarantine the people in the <laughs> building if there is. It's no joke, like Baylor wow. has, they are, among, I mean, honestly, I'm, when I talk to other colleagues at other universities, I'm just really blown away by what they've come up with to try to manage this and do our jobs well, yeah. That's amazing. Testing sewage. Mm -hmm. That one got me right yeah. there. Like, all right, <laughs> bravo. Hats off to Baylor on that one. Oh, my gosh. Um, all right. So this this book, The Gravity of Joy, what was what was the genesis behind this? I'm, I'm curious. And well, let's start there. <laughs> let's. Uh, yeah, let's start there. What was kind of the genesis behind this? And I, I love the storytelling uh, that you give in this. And, and even at the preface or the beginning of the book, you talk about how you you know, you went over a lot of the stories with the people who, you know, you, you name in here, which I think is, is great. But uh, yeah, what, what was the genesis behind this? Yeah. So yeah, it's important for people to know that definitely my story, it's very memoir-esque in the sense that it is my story and my family's story um, throughout the book. But there's a lot of other people's stories in it. There's the stories of women I met in prison. There's stories of people who have lost loved ones um, to suicide or addiction. Um, and also the stories of people who have recovered from such things. And also the stories of people who are helping others to recover. Um, so it's just, it's been a really cool thing to be able to, along the way of writing this book, meet different people and then interweave their stories into mine and my family's, which for me is what it means to be a part of the community of God is to realize how my story is impacted by yours and how our, we're telling and then that we have a story and that there's a larger story we're all living out, you know? So that's what I'm trying to capture, I think, in the gravity of joy. I became a member of the research team at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture in March 2016. Um, 
and our job was to research joy and um it was amazing you know and over the course of three years we had 239 scholars from over 140 institutions across multiple disciplines everything from psychology to philosophy to literature you know etc come to the yale center for faith and culture or we had research consultations in other places too but and people shared their papers or and their ideas about joy from their different like disciplinary perspectives um, for three years i was a part of those conversations you know incredible um and so when i first got to yale in um in 2016, I thought, oh, I, I can't wait to like write about joy. And I did go there with the intention of myself also writing about joy. And I read everything I could get my hands on for the first months of being there. Um, and then in December of 2016, just, you know, eight months into the Joy and Project, eight and a half months in, um, my cousin's husband, Dustin, died by suicide at 30 years old, one week before Christmas. Ugh. And... And then I, the week, that week was hands down the most gut-wrenching week of my mm. life to that point. Mm. I, it was, I could not stop crying. Mm. No one could in my family. We were all devastated, absolutely devastated. Um, and so I get back to my home in Connecticut and I just think, oh my goodness, like how are we going to recover from this? And then a week and a half later, my nephew died at 22 of sudden cardiac arrest. So my oldest sister's son dies very suddenly. Uh, it's a previously unknown heart condition. Again, I, fly, I find myself flying to New Mexico to be with my oldest sister. Like, oh my God, you know, how is this happening? Like, we just had a family tragedy. Like, I can't believe that here I am two and a half, whatever weeks later thinking, you know, with my sister, sitting around a counter with all my sisters trying to make sense of the fact that like my nephew has died you know so do his funeral i read his obituary at his funeral get back on a sunday and i just think to myself again in connecticut oh my gosh like how will our family recover from these two things like what what am i like how am i supposed to just keep doing my job you know this is crazy you know because <laughs> i'm trying i've had a lot of time off work so now i know i have to go back to work well anyways Two days after I get back from my nephew's funeral, I get a message that my dad is dying and I need to go wow. see him. If I want to see him live, like I need to get there as soon as possible. And six, you know, five days after my nephew's funeral, my dad died and my sister, one of my sisters and I was in the room with, um, with him. Mm. I was holding his um, right hand. My sister was holding his left hand when he died. Mm. Um, and the next day I found myself, um, and I described this in the gravity of joy, like in a fetal position, like on the floor in between like the bed and the wall in her extra bedroom of her house. And I was just like, I, you know, I knew, I knew then, like, I, I have no idea. I knew then this, this grief journey is going to, wreck my heart like this is going to this is i don't know how well and honestly the question i think was just like how do you recover from such things you know mm -hmm. um four weeks three people you love that died in rapid succession you're at all their funerals you know you speak at all their funerals you i did my dad's funeral i i, I gave the homily at my dad's funeral um 
And so I get back to Yale and my job is to study joy and to teach a class called Life Worth Living. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wow. Yeah, right? Yeah. And so I spend the next year and a half trying to do both Hmm. as well as I can, but in the midst of profound, profound grief. I was, and I went every, I did everything from cry daily to becoming really fearful of death to, you know, becoming extremely angry. I was so angry by the end of 2017. It was unbelievable. Um, And then, so I just found myself in May, 2018, being asked like, or or signing up to be a volunteer as a women's chaplain, as as a chaplain at a women's maximum security prison. Mm. And I had no way of knowing then that for a year and a half, I had been searching for the kind of help that I would find in that prison. And this book is about that. It is about the journey from despair to joy Hmm. and how women in prison helped me to understand that journey. Wow. That's, that's heavy. (laughs) I know. (laughs) No, yeah. I mean, and, and I and I think that's I don't know if you do any enneagram stuff. I'm enneagram four, so I mean, I'm 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 used to intensity, and and I, I tend to come off as intense. So I get that. Um, I all right. So so many questions here. How well? Let me ask this then. When you talk about a, a women's prison, how what were some of the things that stood out to you? How did they help and teach you? You know, in that you know, in the context of of prison. I say in the gravity of joy, there's nothing half-baked in prison. That's why I felt so alive there. I There was something about that room, that space where I met with these women week in and week out, where I realized the beautiful healing nature of honesty, of saying like, this is where I'm at. This is where I'm com- coming from. This is the help I need. I need. This is the prayer I need. Like, you know what I mean? This is what I'm desperate for. Like, there was something about that beautiful, brutal honesty that was so refreshing for me. I felt like there was very little, if like any, like no space really mm-hmm. in my life where I could be super honest about what I felt, like how angry I was, how fearful I was, how sad I was, how you know, how brutal life could be. Like I literally was just, you know, because, and then, but in this space, these women were just so open about these things, you know? And so I began to see what it's like, like how that can be healing for you. Hmm. But then also, you know, the other thing is that, you know, in prison, I mean, there's so many things I learned, but another thing I'll mention right now is just like that, in, in the midst of that honesty was also a tremendous amount of hope. And mm. there was this way of each week, people like took turns holding hope for each other, you know, and it would be so interesting to see, because I think that's the only way you survive prison is that somehow you find hope. Mm. Um, you find some, and you like latch onto it and or, or, and I ask, I guess I have to say one more, and I'm like, this is like all H's, it's interesting, <laughs> but also, humanization. They had this Mm. incredible capacity to humanize one another in an experience that was so dehumanizing. And my goodness, couldn't we learn something like all of us in American society today about what it looks like to really humanize one another, you know? And so like, for example, in prison, 
everyone calls, like all the corrections officers, the COs call incarcerated people, um, you know, by their last names. And that's pretty dehumanizing. I mean, it's a way of dehumanizing someone is like you suddenly like you're not your first, you don't, there's like, there's something about it. And then you have this number you wear around and everyone has to dress the same and you can't hug anybody and there's strip searches like on a regular basis and all these things that are so dehumanizing. And yet these women, every single Wednesday night, I would find the ways I would w watch the ways that they would find ways to humanize one another in the situation they were in. So for example, instead of saying the person I share a cell with, they would say my bunkie. So there was a mm. lot of, there was this whole language in prison uh, that, that they were using in order to humanize one another. Um, when women were present in the Bible study that were older than, you know, 50-ish, 55-ish, they always called the Miss so-and-so, Miss Aaliyah, you know, as a way of showing respect. And that wasn't something me and the other co-leaders of the Bible study started. This is something they did for one another. And so we would follow suit, you know. So it's like this honesty, this humanization, um, and this hope that was present in the room and that we, like, held each other's hope. I mean, it was just, yeah, those were some things that really stick out. No, I appreciate that. I love that. That is... I, I was getting a visual, a lot of visuals as you were talking and sitting here like that's that that is it. That, the one question that popped up is how do you think that differs like with men in prison? Right. I mean, obviously, it's a different cultural stigma, but I and I've heard some of this. I've I've never been to a woman. I mean, I've been I've taken students to a, a women's prison, but I've never spent time working in a women's prison. Um, only with, you know, only with men and granted the men we were working with were great. In fact, uh, North Park here has a whole program with, uh, um, the prison, our, our, our state penitentiary here. Um, we have Statesville. Um, and so those guys are great, right? We got a whole extension program there and the whole nine, but I know by and large, right. Having grown up in California, you think about Pelican Bay and you think about, you know, places like that where it's like, you know, you got entire movies filmed around. I mean, how do, how do you think some of the, those differences when you talk about humanizing and hope, uh, it, or do you think there's a difference? May, and maybe that's too big of a question or whatnot because. Of no, I don't think, I don't think it is, but I do think it depends on the context. I think it depends on what you're doing in the prison, you know, whether you're going to see these things, but I have taught, I've taught life worth living. The class I taught at Yale, I taught at a men's prison. Okay. So I taught, I, I taught, um, I had 18 men in my class um, a couple springs ago. And um, so I've only had one experience with like in a men's prison and it was for this class. Um, but I had 18 men in my class and these men, I mean, from the second the class started, they were, I will say it's important to know though that the chaplain chose men that he thought would be really interested in this conversation who wanted to answer the questions of like, what makes life worth living? What does it mean to lead our lives well? What does it mean for life to feel right? What is What should we hope for? Like these were men that he felt like wanted to be a part of this discussion and they did. And what was so wild is like my colleague Matt and I taught it together and um, so it's like me and these 19 dudes every week, but it was great. And um, I, when uh, the first week we gave them like 25 pages or something to read and they were just, you know, the next week, like, could you give us more? Like we would, really, so we ended up giving them like a hundred to 150 pages of reading every week hmm. and these guys did it. 
I mean, they were in, they were ready. They wanted, you know, and there were, there was a lot of tears shed in that space. We mm. did a lot of, we had them journal about their responses to these questions. And then we opened every Monday or Tuesday. When did we go to the prison? Tuesdays. We would open every Tuesday um, with them sharing with each other what they had written and listen, lots of tears shed, lots mm. of honesty there too. Um, so many like just beautiful moments of like, you know, insight on the text that we were reading, you know, just into the discussion, so present, so stoked to be there. Um, and on the last day of the class, they shared their visions of like what makes life worth living. And um, just some of the things that they said were so incredible and just things that I want for my own life. Um, I was really moved and inspired by how they articulated their visions of the good life, the true life. Um, but also a really important thing that happened um, that maybe is like sort of what you were talking about a second ago that could be a problem is that in prison, oftentimes the, the guys told us that you are divided a lot of times, not by the prison's doing, but by the, in, like the people who are incarcerated is doing, you're divided at, at meals by the crime that you are in prison for. Um, by what you've been charged with. And so, and there is a hierarchy and mm. people who are in prison for sexual offenses are at the, the bottom of the totem pole, especially people who are in prison for, you know, of course, uh, like child sexual offenses. They are the lowest of the low. Um, and there were men in our class who were in prison for that, that kind of charge. Mm. Um, and people said on the last day, I would have never eaten with him. Like they were honest, right? This yeah. is honest. This yeah. is not half-baked, right? This is what I'm talking about. I would have never eaten with him, but now that I know his story and where he came from and like what he would do differently if he could, like I want to eat with him. I do eat with him. You know, they were, well. They, they realized like that the hierarchies that we place in society that they were then creating themselves. And they're like, this is so problematic. Like, why are we doing this to one another? And, um, and then the men said on that last day, I feel like um, I felt free for the two hours that we've met every week. I feel like the life worth living is possible in light of the conversations that we've had. I feel like I have an opportunity to be the man that I was always meant to be, you know? So I think if you, if you have, if you create a space where people can share openly with each other, where people are not you know, just told what to think, but really invited to think like a liberal education, <laughs> good one should be, you know, really invited to share, to tell their stories. Really incredible things can happen with that's both men and women. That's yeah. powerful. That's powerful. I'm glad, and again, I, you know, that story, which I think it's key and fundamental right throughout the book. And it's something I've always emphasized as well, right? It's like the narrative. Once I get to know you, once I get to to understand where, where you're coming from, um, so I got a few questions. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this one. Where, where do you think the role of lament is in, in all of this? How does that, and how do we, and with that, um, how do we avoid, because I don't feel like your book does this at all, but um, just for some of my listeners, how do we avoid the, right, the Tony Robbins five-step, hey, just do this and you'll be, you'll be filled with joy, right? You know, how do we avoid that and what's the role of lament? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um First of all, I, I want to say just right out the gate that lament is a gateway to joy. Um, you cannot fear profound suffering 
um, anger, righteous anger, and all other kinds of anger are obstacles to joy. And not in the sense that you need to just like get over them and, you know, in the sense that we actually have to learn to befriend even anger and fear and lament. Like we have to learn to laugh. I I think that every emotion can be a teacher. Mm. And I think that we have to learn to allow our emotions to teach us because that's a thing I read recently. Someone said like your heart, don't say your heart's broken. It's not broken. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. <laughs> like it's either it's telling you something. I think we have to listen to every kind of emotion that we have. I don't really believe in like negative emotions or bad emotions. I think every emotion, like I don't agree with the Stoics at all. Obviously, um, I think every emotion is a teacher. So, um, but I do. I think it's important to say though too that if we don't befriend our emotions and in express them in constructive, generative ways you know, then they become obstacles to recognizing goodness, meaning, truth, connection with other people, beauty in the world, which then makes it hard for us to feel joy. Um, And so I think if you want to feel joy, if you want to be more open to joy in your life, if you want to be ready for joy in your life, which I think that's all you can do, you can't make joy, but you can be ready for it. You can be open to it in your life. You do have to, you know, you have to, um, work through other emotions, which includes lament. And so um, I really, I'm gonna, I'm, uh, I've got Dr. Wimberly, Dr. Anstrudy Wimberly's new book from lament to advocacy. Mm. Um, and I would say that I think that before you can advocate, before you, you have to understand the lament, I think that's very important. Um, and certainly I think that the reason why there was so much space for joy in the prison context that I've been in is because people openly lamented. And um, and that was a regular part of every week too. For every week that there was joy, there was also lament. And for me, the last thing I'll say is that Ezra 3 really, um, for me, captures this well. In Ezra 3, the temple's being rebuilt. And it says that there's some people looking on and they're seeing the temple being rebuilt and they're weeping because they're very, very sad because they remember the way that things used to be. And there are also people looking on, seeing it be rebuilt and they're rejoicing. And it says it's hard to distinguish the sounds of joy from the sounds of weeping. I think that in America today, we could say the same thing. I think in much of our lives that there's always sort of this intermingling of sorrow and joy um, that we wrestle with, you know. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. That's um, that's good. I think that's a good word. And, you know, I think, yeah, I think that's great. And I love your your epilogue. Um, you know, you give out, you know, some good stuff right here. You're struggling with suicidal thinking. You're struggling with opioid addiction, which obviously is, is, is a continual thing, right? Talk about education and prevention, joining in, warning signs of suicide, um, let me also ask you, like, how, how does the therapeutic process play a role in any of, in, in all of what you were doing, right? I think about first being myself being, you know, diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and you know, just, just the acknowledgement of that. I didn't even, you know, it was like once, and, and, I, and I found that out at an academic conference, like somebody was explaining it and I was like, huh, yeah, that might be me. Let me go get this figured out. But I know for me, there was, you know, like resistance and all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. But I'd be curious, like, what that was like for you or what it continues to be like. Yeah. So first, I just want to say thank you so much for pointing out the epilogue. I really hope people don't skip it when they read the book. Yes. Because for me, for me, like, my hope is that you read all these stories and that you're like, okay, I want to 
create more space for joy in my life and for others so that people don't have to chase this synthetic happiness and like part Mm. of being a part of the groundswell like part of being a part of the groundswell of people who are committed to joy is really working to mitigate suicide mitigate addiction uh, like addiction to opioids you know and working on prison reform or prison abolition depending on which way you want to go with it but um there's just i wanted to point in the epilogue to people who were like if this book awakens something in you that says i want to do something i want to be a part of creating space for joy helping other people recover i want to be a part i want to you know i want to help myself recover these are some like people who are doing amazing work. These are some websites. These are some books you can read. You know, so I think that's important for people. Like my my book is just highlighting the work of so many incredible people um, that are that have been doing this for a long time. You know, um, this kind of this kind of stuff. And so um, the other thing, yeah. So to answer your your question. Um, I have been in therapy a lot of different times in my life, and that's very important for people to know. Mm-hmm. Was this book therapeutic to write, cathartic to write? A hundred percent, you know, but I wasn't able to write this book until I did EMDR therapy for post-traumatic yes. stress disorder. So I had six months of EMDR therapy yes. for yeah. post-traumatic stress because that is what happened. I got PTSD. That, that's where the fear, was. I, I really had a deep fear mm-hmm. of... Like, when's the next time, like, someone's going to call me that someone's going to die? Right. I love. Right. You know, I just, I was saving every voicemail. I was just constantly thinking about death. And so EMDR therapy was amazing for me. It was really helpful. Um, and then I'm also currently in therapy with a, a trauma, I have a trauma specialist who um, is helping me work through not just that period of time in my life, but some other things. Um, I totally, I think trauma therapy is amazing. Like, if you've experienced um, various forms of trauma in your life. Um, and I also have a spiritual director that I meet with regularly. She is a Roman Catholic nun. I am not Catholic, but um, she is 79. I'm 38. So it's important for me to be mentored by someone who is significant, who has a lot more life experience than me. She runs a parish. She has a PhD in psychology. She's a badass. And I have so much respect for her. Um, and so Suzanne, you know, has walked me through a lot of different things in my life as well for the last like seven years. So I am, yeah, a huge advocate of spiritual direction, of therapy in all of its various forms, and also of just being committed to community. I could not, and you'll see, you see in this book, some of the people who carried me through. Mm -hmm. My gratitude section is very long in this book because so many people supported me in my grief that I had to thank. And, um, I am so, so grateful to the community of family and friends who have held me up on the days I really needed it. Yeah. That's deep. That's deep. You said EMDR, man. That's some intense stuff right there. That's, <laughs> yeah, I know. That, that, that'll do it right there. Man. That'll do it right there. Um, this That's good. I know I appreciate that. And again, that's why I wanted to highlight... Again, folks who are reading this, you definitely got to check everything out from cover to cover. Um, I love that the resources are back there. I'm a, I'm a resource fiend, so I'm always looking for stuff. So thank you for, for putting that in there. I love that. It's a great touch. Um, so let me ask this. I mean, I know you're a busy woman, and we're probably reaching our time here. But how, as you're thinking about joy, the gravity of joy, we've talked a little bit about lament. And like you said, the what did you say in prison? There was no... Uh, that, that nothing was, was nothing was half baked that, in prison. That's, that's why right. I felt so alive there. Yeah. Yes, no, no half baked. Um, how then do you think some of this stuff 
crosses racial and ethnic barriers, right? When you think about some of the right now, before I came down, my you know my daughter's doing online uh, learning, e-learning, and whatnot, and there you know, she was in her history class, and they were learning about um, Black Wall Street, uh, which I'm always amazed that they're even learning about you know some of these things because I've had to like help her along the way with history, right? Especially Black history. Um, so it was like this little video and documentary done in a cartoonish way for eighth graders, and you know she's she's asking me like, is this accurate? Is this like what went on here? So you think about some of the horrific things right that have happened and stuff how how do you think some of this stuff translates cross ethnically cross racially um and just in your perspective and again i'm genuinely asking that that question because i'm i'm curious myself because i you know right i you know hear a lot about these things right it's like oh man my cousin was shot i mean i talked to one young brother who was like he was in my class he was in a lot of my classes um and he was just like, you know, you see death in, you know, social media. I see death where I live at in my community. You hear about death, you know, on television. So he's like, you know, I'm just like numb to it. And, you know, we've I've tried to, you know, kind of push him a little bit more towards therapeutic and, you know, processes and whatnot. But I'd be curious just how some of this may or may not translate. I'd, I'd be curious. What do you think? Well, yeah, I just I think it's really important for people to know that whether we're talking about suicide rates, opi the opioid crisis, or mass incarceration, that it impacts like every ethnicity, each one of these things. But it does impact every like race, like every you know in in different ways. Um, and so, and that's important to know, like the sort of nuance, you know. So, uh, for example, I think a huge problem with the opioid crisis is that the narrative around the opioid crisis really it became you know a very popular story to tell in recent years because you know all of a sudden opioids entered into suburban neighborhoods and started impacting middle and upper class white families so all of a sudden we had a quote unquote crisis but the opioid crisis started long ago. Um, you know, we're talking about the 70s and 80s um, in black community, like black urban communities because of, you know, um, underemployment and, um, you know, the GI Bill and everything that had happened that like negatively impacted black men um, who served um, and they were not granted the same things that other, that white men who served were given and all these sort like multiple dimensions of, um, urbanization in America and what happened. But anyways, the opioid crisis started way lo a long time ago. It's not a new thing. So I think it's just important for people to realize that I think that black Americans and then white poor, Amer poor white Americans and brown Americans have largely been left out of the opioid narrative, mm -hmm. you know, until recent, you know, so it's just an, like, it's just not a new phenomenon. I just want to say that first. And then secondly, when it comes to like prison, for example, um, mass incarceration is just a problem in America, period. Literally, it's a problem for every ethnicity in America. We over incarcerate, period. And I want to say very clearly that addiction is a health issue. It's not a moral issue. It's not a moral failure. It's a health crisis. And that the problem is that we have made addiction a moral failure, which is why we have so many people who are incarcerated today. And yet, even though every, even though we over-incarcerate, period, it's very important to know that a man, a white man born in 2001, one in 2001, yeah, one in 17 white men born in 2001 will end up in prison sometime in their lifetime. It's like that's the likelihood. But one in three black men. Are, are likely to end up in prison in their lifetime that were born in 2001. One in 17 versus one in three, when we have a much higher percentage 
of you know, white people in America than black people. So this is very important, right? So there, we, it's uh, like each one of these problems like hits, you know, suicide. It's, it's across generations. I mean, it's from 10 years old to like 80 years old. This is a huge problem across ages, across ethnicities. And yet, um, for example, in black communities, mental health is still, I think, so it's so difficult for um, black communities to uh, talk about mental health from the interviews that I've done, you know, from the research that I've done, that there's still such a stigma around mental health, especially in the sense of um, like, it should be something that you work on on your own or that, you know, if you pray about it and like give it to God, it, everything's cool. That's kind of the, like, I think a narrative of a lot of um, black churches that I've like when I've interviewed with people and so it, the problem is that people I feel, feel like think feel like that they can't talk about it um, and so I think it's important you know but that happens in white communities and brown communities and Asian communities as well where people I mean you have to be able to talk about these things things have to be mentionable you know mm -hmm. but um, I just want to say that suicide rates among all all age uh, so especially like teenagers um, suicide rates in um, the like 2010s, like 2015 to 2018, raised like 56% among 10 to 30 year olds. But then um, we have even a more dramatic increase among young black teenagers. Um, and we researchers have been trying to figure it out. We don't know if it's because of the high incarceration of um, of their parents and not being able to, you know, we don't know if it's that. We don't know if it's um, a, the struggle with um, code switching, mm -hmm. of feeling like that they're having to have multiple identities in multiple places and not being able to figure out who am I, who am I supposed to be. We don't know if it's due, you know, so there's like different, we're trying to understand it. I feel like, you know, why is this happening? Why are the rates even higher among young black teenagers, especially young black men? Um, we don't know if it's also, it could be this, the homicides that they're witnessing either in their neighborhood or on the news of other black men um, that just, you know, that they like just despair sets in, you know? So anyways, what I'm trying to say, but, you know, in regards to your question is that all the things I'm mentioning in this book impact every ethnicity, but in different ways. And that is important to understand. I love that. And, and, and I already emphasize again, for those listening, you know, this is, this is definitely not a, a book that deals with, you know, the sunshine effect, right. That I say, you know, when it comes to, you know, dealing with joy and all these things, right? It's like, oh, here's this bad thing, but oh, but at the end, you just got to do these four things. So I just want to reemphasize that. And talking about the realness um, of this, um, I think, it, you know, I think it's really important. So I, you know, I appreciate the the story and, and for you bearing it all. I mean, you know, you're putting it in, you know, in, in a, your story in a, in a public manner, right? You know, to put this out there. And uh, Erdman's is, is, a, is a great publisher. Um, I've worked with them in the past. So they, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great space. Um, ultimately, what are you hoping folks to, uh, take away at this time and space that we find ourselves in as a country, right? You know, we got, yeah. you know, white nationalism up on, you know, we got, um, you know, this sense of QAnon, right? New York Times just released a story yesterday with the audio effects of people believing in QAnon and whatnot. Um, on the other side of that, you've got people, 
you know, who are trying to still push for equity and equality. And you know, I have friends of mine uh, who are still, you know, striving and thriving out in um, Minneapolis where George Floyd was killed, you know, the George Floyd Memorial. Um, what are you hoping folks to take away, you know, from a lot of this and, and, and ultimately kind of a your own joy and hope moving forward? Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. This book is is definitely heavy in the sense of like, you know, it is. Yeah, it's not about five ways to find happiness, um, but it is about the stories of people who have recovered or who have found how like who have recovered from addiction or from suicidal thinking. Um, or suicide attempts that they've had in their life and they continue to live and like how they've done that. But also this book is really about my friend, Willie James Jennings, uh, professor of systematic theology at Yale Divinity School. He says that we can make our pain productive without glorifying or justifying suffering. And he says that joy is a work of resistance against despair. It was those two sentences that helped me to write this book. It launched me into writing. I could not stop writing after I heard him say that because I thought to myself, I want to make my pain, my family's pain, Dustin's pain, my dad's pain, Mason's pain, my sister, you know, everybody who's, I wanna make pain productive. I'm not gonna glorify what happened to my family. I'm not gonna justify what happened in this prison to these women, to these women or to like them before they got there but I want to make their pain productive too. And so I like, that's what we can do. And then the second thing is I do believe, and I saw it in prison week in and week out. I saw it in my own life. I saw it in my family's life that, that joy can be a work of resistance against despair. Hope is the anticipation of joy, as Jürgen Moltmann says. So I think that hope is also a gateway to joy. My, my great prayer <clears throat> is that this book gives people hope it creates, um, it gives people, um, it helps people to imagine ways that they can create spaces for joy, which really means creating space for people to tell their stories, to be honest, to humanize one another, right? Um, to have hope with each other um, when, and to take turns week in and week out doing that for each other. Um, I hope that people, you know, imagine what happened in this book in their minds and then they go, wanna go and live it out and they become, I hope every single person who reads The Gravity of Joy becomes a part, joins the groundswell of people who are working to mitigate suicide in this country, to, mm. to, to right the wrongs of the opioid crisis and who are working on prison reform or prison abolition. Like, I hope people are awakened to that and along the way that they feel joy because joy is the recognition of and connection we feel to what is truthful, meaningful, beautiful, and good. And I believe that that's why joy can always find us because even when we feel like all there is, is white nationalism and QAnon and all that other crap that's happening in the world, even when we feel like that's all there is, I have to believe that there is still truth, meaning, beauty, and goodness to be found, and therefore joy can always find us. You know, mm, that's a good word. That's a good word. Um, that's a good word, folks. The book is "The Gravity of Joy: A Story of Being Lost and Found" by Dr. Angela Williams Garrell. Um, thank you for taking the time, you know, and coming out and, and speaking on this and just kind of sharing your story and and nuancing that some of the, in, 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 in a lot of ways. Where can folks find you? Where can they, uh, you know, bring you out to, uh, to speak and all those good things? Yeah, yeah, please. I am loving, I'm doing Zoom interviews. I'm doing online conferences. 
conferences. I'm doing some in-person events when there's masks being worn and stuff. Um, so absolutely, you can find me at Angela Gorell. That's with two R's and two L's. So at Angela Gorell Instagram, at Angela Gorell, Angela Gorell Twitter. Um, you can find me on Facebook. I'm pretty much like the first Angela Gorell, I think, that shows up when you're searching for me. Um, but most of all, you can find me at Baylor University. So if you just Google Angela Baylor, you'll probably find me very easily. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Go, as always, for those listening, I'll put these in all on the show notes. So uh, contact Dr. Grell and read the book, uh, The Gravity of Joy. Uh, check it out. So again, thank you so much, Doc. We're going to get you back on. Oh, Dr. Hodge, thank you so much for having me and for your awesome questions and conversations today. 